Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Our sermon text for this morning will be Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to hear from you. We come to hear from your word. We come to hear your truth Uh, in the midst of a world with so many competing voices and so much noise. Father, we need you to cut through the, the clutter and the noise and give us your grace and your truth. So we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would pour out your grace and your truth on us by your spirit, your grace and truth that are found in your son. Uh, Teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our sermon text is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God desires... To dwell with his people. God desires to, to, to walk among us, to be with us, to look at us face to face. Now that may seem like an odd statement to you, but scripture clearly teaches it as we will see. God desires to be our God and for us to be his people. Uh, this speaks to a longing in every human heart to, to touch the, the face of the transcendent as it were to experience the the ecstasy of the pleasures that are at God's right hand forevermore. Now, when Scripture talks about such things, it often uses the language of the temple. And if you are are new here or are are not a Christian, right, for, for weeks we have been talking about these strange world, this strange world of priests and temples and offerings. And you might be tempted to think, well, who cares, I mean, there's a pandemic going on after all. There are racial tensions in our country. There are problems with our government. Why don't you talk about those things? And I would say that scripture does have some things to say about all of those realities. But this morning, we are going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. Why? Uh, Well, for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's our practice to work our way through books of the Bible week after week, and we do that in part so our own agendas don't co-opt God's agenda. Uh, We want to hear from God, not hear my opinion on current events. Uh, My opinion doesn't matter after all, and it's probably not a good one anyway. 
But second, and it, it, it is, and, and more importantly, it is by more fully understanding the spiritual realities that the book of Hebrews and the rest of the Bible discusses that we are empowered to step out into the world as God's representatives and then serve him by serving the people around us. So we can only do that as we receive and appreciate and then live in light of the grace of the gospel. Well, what does this all have to do with the temple? Well, the temple ultimately tells us that God is not done with this world. He has not abandoned it, however things might appear. Rather, God is at work to turn earth into heaven to make the mundane into the most holy place. The temple tells us that God desires to dwell with his people, and he is, he is doing something about it, and he will do it. That is our hope, God with us. And it is that hope of dwelling with God in God's temple that enables us to face the world without despair, and to work in the present to bear witness to God's promised future. And so let's, let's seek to find hope this morning, not a hope that allows us to escape the world, but that enables us to engage it for the glory of God and the good of God's world. As I said, uh, we're going to be talking about the tabernacle this morning, and in some ways we're going to take a step back, half a step back from our passage to get the big picture of the tabernacle throughout Scripture in other ways, we're going to be focusing in on, on just a few phrases in our passage as we look at the true tent, verse 2, in contrast to the copy and shadow, verse 5. So we're not going to look at everything in our passage this morning. Some of it sums up things that we've already been talking about over the past few weeks, that we have a high priest seated at the right hand of God who has entered in to the holy place. Yet others... Uh, portions of our passage this morning looks forward to chapters 8 through 10, where we will look at Christ's offering and God's covenant in the weeks to come. But this morning, uh, this morning, we will look at the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. And to look at this reality, we're going to take uh, four movements, as it were. We're going we're gonna to move backward, and then forward, and then upward, and then hopeward. Backward, forward, upward, and hopeward. So first, backward. You know, as, uh, as Christians think about the, the Old Testament, there tends to be two extremes. Uh, there are a few people, uh, maybe a very few, but there are a few uh, people who say we need to get back to it, right? We need to keep the Jewish law. We shouldn't eat pork. We shouldn't cut, cut our hair and so on that uh, there, there aren't many Christians who think this way, but every once in a while, you'll, you'll run into someone who will say something like, oh, I'm not a Christian, I'm a follower of Yeshua, uh, which would have been Jesus' name in Hebrew. Uh, they want to take the Old Testament seriously, and, and that's good. Uh, there are other folks, uh, maybe this is more common, who think we should just get rid of the Old Testament. I was talking with a Christian a few years ago, and uh, I quoted something in the Old Testament and he responded, yeah, but that's the Old Testament, as if that in itself were an argument for its irrelevance. Now, of course, there, there is some truth behind both of these positions. Uh, one, everything Jesus said and did is rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is important. We should take it seriously. But two, Jesus did come and do some things that were radically new and went beyond the Old Testament in certain ways. 
It's important, but it's not the end of the story. Right? The story of God's grace does begin in the book of Genesis, but it doesn't end with the book of Malachi. Right? We still need to turn the page to Matthew. And yet the truth is, right, we understand who Jesus is because of the teaching of the Old Testament, right? If you don't understand the Old Testament, you won't fully understand Jesus. The book of Hebrews can't talk about Jesus as a, a better priest, for example, if we don't understand what priesthood was all about. See, we understand what the New Testament means by priesthood because of the teaching of the Old Testament on it. And what about the temple, right? What about God dwelling with his people? What does the Old Testament say about that? Well, the Old Testament teaches that God created the world that he might dwell with his people. It teaches that God talked with Adam, that God walked in the Garden of Eden. God was there dwelling with his people. But then sin happened. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They were no longer allowed to dwell with their father. To stay would really put their lives in greater danger because the, the justice and holiness of God, right, precise, precisely because they are, are just and holy, right, necessarily react to right wrongs, to be rid of injustice, to cleanse that which has been defiled. To overlook injustice would be for God to be unjust. To overlook sin would be for God to be sinful. And so Adam and Eve were in danger, <laughs> God was to, to save the life of Adam and Eve, to delay the death sentence pronounced upon them, they had to leave. But of course, leaving meant leaving the presence of their father. God eventually calls Abraham. As the story goes on, he promises to be God to him and to his offspring. Later, God brings Abraham's offspring, the people of Israel, out of Egypt by the hands of Moses. Now, at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses a pattern for the earthly tabernacle. Right? God would again dwell with his people. And we see that in, in Hebrews 8.5, when speaking of the Old Testament priesthood, the, the writer says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. See, based on that pattern, Moses set up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a portable tent in, in which God met with his people. Uh, God did that through means of sacrifice. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the priests offered sacrifices. The smoke rose up to the Father as a pleasing aroma, and the people were acceptable to God. In Leviticus 26, God says, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. You see, the tabernacle brings echoes of Eden, God dwelling with his people, walking in their midst. In the tabernacle, God brought his people close once again, but not too close. The Holy of Holies or the most holy place was, was God's throne room, as it were, and only the high priest was allowed to go in there, and that only once a year. Most Israelites were held off. God was in their midst, but face to face, he was not. And even that arrangement didn't last forever. The, the tabernacle did eventually become the temple, a more permanent structure in which God caused his name to dwell and meet with his people. But the temple was eventually destroyed multiple times, and Part of the hope of the prophets was of a restored temple, 
where God would once again take away our sins through sacrifice and dwell in the midst of his people. Well, that's looking back. Let's move forward. Uh, as I said before, right, we don't really understand the New Testament apart from the Old, but the story doesn't end with the Old either. There is a movement, there's a progression in the story, and so we turn uh, the page from Malachi to Matthew, and when Jesus comes on the scene, there is there's a big, beautiful temple, Herod's temple it was called, uh, because it was financed by King Herod. And Jesus' relationship to the temple is interesting. He, he worshiped, worshiped in it even as a child and referred to it as his father's house. But he also made reference to the destruction of the temple. On the one hand, he warned about the coming of Rome in AD 70 when the temple would, was actually destroyed. On the other hand, Jesus said things like this in John 2. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, the Jews responded, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus must have said this quite a bit because it's actually one of the accusations made against him at his trial that he said he would destroy the temple made with hands and build another in its place made without hands. Of course, they misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. John says Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. See, the New Testament teaches that Jesus was God's temple. John says that, that God the Son became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He was God walking in our midst. Jesus himself was the presence of God among us. God had caused his name to dwell there. And so we're told by Paul that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh. Of course, Jesus comes not only as temple, but priest. And he offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. And in Jesus, once again, God is taking away sins through sacrifice and dwelling in the midst of his people. And yet, as we continue in the New Testament, we see that that's not the end of the temple imagery still, right? The, the early Christians, uh, the very early Christians, continued to worship in the temple for a time. You see that in the book of Acts. But as the gospel spread to other nations and other peoples, they worshiped in their homes. Now, the reason this was possible because, was because of something Jesus said in John 4. Uh, Jesus said uh, the time was coming when people would not worship in the temple, but true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And notice the word true there, right? You, you have it in our passage as well. You have the true worshipers in John 4. You have the true tent, tent or temple in Hebrews 8. Uh, what does the word true mean? Well, it's, it's actually not in these passages true versus false. Uh, think about some of the other ways the word is used in John. Uh, John calls Jesus the true light, uh, but that's not true versus false light. It, uh, Jesus compares himself to the manna in the wilderness and says he is the true bread. His body is true food and his blood is true drink. But the manna wasn't false bread and the food and drink we consume is not false food and drink. Jesus compared himself to Israel and says he is the true vine. But again, it wasn't that Israel was a false vine. And so, so what does the word true mean in all of these cases? At, at least it, it means something like this. These uh, other things were signs pointing to a deeper reality. They, they were real, but, but most often temporary. And Jesus 
has come as the more real and the eternal. See, the true is the eternal. It's that which lasts, that which our writer will call unshakable. So the early Christians outside Jerusalem, they, they didn't need a temple. Why? Because Jesus' people in general are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church in particular is God's temple. Uh, Paul says to a group of Gentile Christians in Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so as you move to the New Testament, that the physical temple structure loses its importance because God first dwells with us in Jesus, and then he takes up residence in the church by his Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand this, right? It's not that we don't have a temple in the New Testament. It's that we are the temple. We are the dwelling place of God. And so we've looked backwards at the Old Testament temple, uh, forward to the, to the New Testament, and the temple as it's fulfilled in Jesus and the church. Now let's look upward. Some of you still might be struggling with kind of the, the relevance of these things. I mean, your, your thoughts may be going to the uh, past week's events, or, or maybe you're just wondering how you're going to get through another week at home with the kids. Can I encourage you, hold on a little longer. Right? It, it's worth it. We, we will get to hope, but first we must look up. The, the true tent spoken of in Hebrews 8.2 is actually neither the tabernacle of the Old Covenant, nor the incarnate body of Jesus, nor the church which means there's yet another temple of God, another dwelling place, which also means God so desires to dwell with his people, we can count at least four different temples in the, in the uh, Bible, five if you include the Garden of Eden. But what makes this temple in Hebrews 8 different from all the rest is that it is not on earth, at least not yet. Verses 1 and 2 of our text says as much. The writer says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Where is Jesus a minister? Where, that is, where is he a priest? The writer mentions three places, at the right hand of the majesty uh, in heaven, the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, in the holy places, and in the true tent. The point is, those are all three the, uh, the same, essentially. This heavenly temple is where God dwells. Uh, the old covenant tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly one. It was a shadow, the writer says. Uh, now, a shadow has some real connection to the object that, it, that, that casts it, right? Its shape and very existence depends on the reality, but it is not the reality. The Old Covenant tabernacle and temple were never the goal. They always pointed forward to something more real and more enduring, something unshakable. They were a sign, not the reality. That, that doesn't mean they weren't important. We could not understand the work of Jesus without them. But the true tent is in heaven, which the Lord set up, not man. 
Now, there is a bit of a polemic here uh, in the language, that, that language that the Lord set up, not man. It, it's brought up again in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 24. Both talk about the true or more perfect tent as that not made with hands. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, what was said to be made with hands were idols. And while the Old Covenant tabernacle was God-ordained, there is at least a, 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 a hint of its inferiority here because it too, like idols, is the work of man's hands rather than the work of God. And so we, we are left looking at the true tent, the true tent in heaven made without hands, that spiritual reality to which the earthly was but a shadow. Now, some might think that this is a kind of spiritualizing the Old Testament, that it's taking what was meant to be physical and literal and twisting it into something spiritual, but that's not actually the case. See, our writer himself tells us why in verse 5, we read it already, says of those old uh, covenant priests, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, that, that quote is from the book of Exodus. Uh, both early Jewish exegetes, uh, teachers of uh, that passage in Exodus, and many Christian ones have understood it this way, that Moses was given a glimpse of the already present spiritual temple in heaven. The pattern he saw was the heavenly reality. We don't have to spiritualize the Old Testament tabernacle because the spiritual reality came first. You know, Solomon, when dedicating the temple, recognized the inferiority of the earthly tabernacle as well. And he said this in 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Solomon knew that God would not dwell in the earthly tabernacle, but he also knew that God, that God did dwell in heaven, even if, even if even that could not contain him. There was a spiritual reality to which the earthly tabernacle always pointed. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus has entered that spiritual reality. He has entered the true and more perfect tent, that not made with hands, that not of this creation, that which is not a mere copy and shadow, but that which is solid and true and real and abiding. Well, that really brings us to, to another danger as we talk about uh, the, the true tent in heaven, that we might misunderstand it this way, that the danger that we might think that this is a move towards something less firm. Uh, since we cannot see or touch this true tent, th does that mean it's just an idea or just a construct or just a metaphor? The answer is absolutely not. Uh, I, I don't pretend to understand the full depth of these things, but Jesus entered into that tabernacle in his body. It is not less real, but more. It is not less firm, but more firm. It's not less enduring, but enduring for eternity. I mean, those old tabernacles and temples have long since disappeared. But the tabernacle in heaven still stands. And Jesus has entered that tent. That is the teaching of the book of Hebrews, that because of his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has entered into the presence of the Father. And because Jesus has entered in, we too can enter in. Jesus, on the basis of his resurrection life, has been appointed a priest to offer gifts and sacrifices on our behalf. He offered his sacrifice once for all at the cross. 
And now he ever lives to intercede for us at the Father's right hand. He is there now praying for us, the merit of his blood pleading on our behalf. And of course, the immediate consequence for us is, is we can now draw near. We can draw near through Christ. He is there and we are united to him by faith, which means we can enter in through prayer. This is how the writer uh, of Hebrews has exhorted us uh, back in Hebrews chapter 4. He said, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And yet we need to remember, we need to remember that this is not the only implication of Jesus entering in. Our hope is that where he is, there we also will be. And this brings us to our last point, hope word. The Christian hope is of dwelling in God's temple. Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Why is this our hope? Well, because just as God desires to dwell with his people, so we desire to dwell with our God. Psalm 23 ends, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 65 says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 84 says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Why would God's people so desire to dwell in God's house? Psalm 1611 tells us, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, if you want joy, then you long for heaven, because that is where true joy is found. We long for the temple courts, and our hope is that because Christ is there, there we will be. He himself said it in in John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is preparing a place for us in the Father's house, his temple. Now we we need to complete this picture by saying two more things about this heavenly temple. The, The first is that this heavenly temple is actually a city. You see, when we turn to the final pages of the book of Revelation, we see not a temple, but a city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. In fact, we're told that there is no temple in that city because God himself and the Lamb are its temple. And his God is is just there, dwelling in the city. And yet that heavenly city of Revelation 21 to 22 strikingly reflects Ezekiel's vision of a restored temple. See, the city, or the the temple has become a city. We long to dwell in God's house, but when we turn to the last pages of the Bible, we realize God's house is a whole city. And that makes sense, right? Hebrews goes on to tell us in chapter 11, Abraham was looking 
forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. We've moved from a temple not made with hands to a city designed and built by God. Similarly, of all the patriarchs, uh, Hebrews 11 says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And yet, what is it about this temple city, this dwelling place of God with men, that enables us to face the troubles of our day? How does the city to come help us in the midst of pandemics and protests? Well, because our hope in this disorienting times is anchored in the true tent. See, when we look around and, uh, at the world and we see disease and death, when we see that over 6 uh, million people have been infected with the coronavirus and over 390,000 people have died, how does the temple city give us hope? Revelation says about that city, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, there will come a time when heaven will come to earth, when the temple of God in heaven will be the temple of God on earth, the, the city, the new Jerusalem, where we will dwell with our father forever and ever. And on that day, death and disease will be no more. That is our hope. When we look around the world and we see a place of division, whether that is the division of black and white or Republican versus Democrat or rich versus poor, right? Again, how does the temple give us hope? Well, the answer, of course, is only because of Jesus. Christ has conquered sin. He has defeated death. He has entered into the true temple, the paradise of God. That gives us the hope that we're not doomed to the present brokenness of this age. We, too, will enter in. But then we begin to look closely and we see that the, the garden temple has become a city, a city where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth will be united in Christ through faith. What is the song that we will sing in that city? Revelation pictures for us the, the angels singing a new song. Worthy are you to take up the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And there will be a great multitude of people, Revelation says, that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, friends, this, this is our hope. Standing with people from, from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, rejoicing in the salvation that the Lamb has brought. That is what the temple is all about. Us dwelling together with our God, enjoying him forever for his glory and honor. Again, how can we have such hope? Because Jesus has entered in. He has entered into the heavenly tabernacle there to present his sacrifice of himself and intercede for us as our great high priest. Because he has entered in, we can be forgiven. Whoever we are, black or white, rich or poor, old or young, because he has entered in, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, interceding for our broken world as Jesus intercedes for us. 
Because he has entered in, we can have hope that we too will enter on the last day, going where our Savior has gone, entering our rest, enjoying the pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. This is our hope. May our lives in the present be lived in such a way that we anticipate what will be in God's promised future. Even as we call all peoples to turn from sin and draw near to the throne of grace through Jesus, that they too might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we do need your mercy and your grace to help us in our time of need. And we, we confess that today, as every day, we are a needy people. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your help. We pray that you would so fill our hearts with the hope of the resurrection and the, the temple city to come that we would live in this world with joy and with hope, and that that would enable us to face our troubles and trials, not escape from them, but engage with them, uh, not be shaken by them, but engage with hope. Father, help us by your spirit to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.